Hey guys, good morning. Good to be with you guys. I am excited to be here. Um, love, I love when, um, I, I, I remember being um, a high school pastor. I remember being a high school student, junior high student, going to camp and just thinking it's the greatest decisions ever made in people's lives are at camp. I mean, and they range from who should I ask to the square dance to am I really going to get on that zip line to am I really serious about God? So all of those things all matter and they're some of the greatest things people, some greatest decisions people will make. You can be praying for them all week. Um, they leave tomorrow at like 4 a.m. I'm not joking. It's like 4 a.m. They get on a bus and drive eight hours. So yeah, you can be praying for those leaders. Okay. Um, so glad to be back here as we're um, talking about some stuff. I was, uh, I was with my family this past week and praying for you guys and starting to begin to get a picture of what God wants to do in the fall. And uh, just really thinking about some great stuff. There is so much great stuff happening at our church. And it's so, so good to be able to be here this morning. If you're new with us, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, like Jordan said, there's a lot of places you could be. I was at, uh, this morning I dropped my son off at uh, seven, 7 o'clock in San Clemente for, his, for a soccer game. And, um, you know, it's going on right now. I just found out my wife texted me. He got an assist, so that's pretty exciting. Um, but, I, you know, knowing there's lots of places you can be, including, like, sports and whatever else, I am so glad that you're here. I really believe that um, God is up to something, and he's going to do something great today. And, um, you know, I, I hope that you're kind of expecting that as well. We're in a series um, called Epic. And as we've been looking at it, it's kind of this, the subtitle is Heroes and Villains of the Bible. And, you know, most often as we read the stories of the Bible— there are clear heroes and clear villains. We can kind of get a picture of who's on the good side and who's not and all that kind of stuff. But what's surprising is if you took, take one more layer, one more cut at the heroes in particular, what you discover is that these are people who aren't inherently wonderful. These are people who are inherently weak. And that the story of God in the Bible isn't just about heroic people. It's about God working through weak people in heroic ways. And so as we look at the Bible, we have this impression often that like, wow, God and every, you know, all these people are super awesome and I'll never be like them. What you look at a little more closely is these are people who are flawed people who have stories and past and have mistakes and all kinds, and God uses them in heroic ways. And I've just, we've got lots of great feedback from a lot of you guys about some of what's been happening, about what God's doing. I heard people talking about, I could not stop, you know, replaying Doug Field's message from last week and somehow it kind of haunted them in the best way possible, if that makes sense. But God uses weak people to accomplish heroic tasks. Here's what it says on the top of your outline. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about those who shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames, and escape the edges of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. Now we get weakness. We get the idea that there is a lot of stuff in our lives that isn't great, and we just go, what possible, what possible good could come from that? And yet the story of heroes in the Bible is that weakness is turned to strength. And so as we kind of get into today, would you just pray with me, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of what that looks like for our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we are people who are aware that, um, that we need you. Today's a day we, um, we turn toward you. There are so many things that have our attention, that have our, our, um, our focus, that have our, um, our desire. And today, if only for this time that we're in here, hopefully for beyond that, but for today, we turn to you now. Father, would you receive us as we are? We know that you do. We forget that you just receive us exactly as we are and that the work that you do in us is to transform and change us. So would you receive us today? Jesus, as we just sit for a moment, where is it in our lives, Father, that we need to turn to you? Small things, 
little habits, little things, little permissions, and in big ways. Maybe some of us, for the first time, are considering what it might look like to actually turn from the life we know into a life of walking with you. Would you bring that to mind for just a moment as we pause and allow you to speak to us in silence, in a rare moment of silence in our week? So God, speak to us in the stillness for just a moment. Jesus, if we're honest, we're in trouble, (laughs) and we need you, sometimes in big, huge ways, and sometimes in not-so-obvious, subtle ways, but we need you. And so today, would today be a day in which we turn to you? In your name, Father, amen. if you, um, if you want to take out of your bulletin a little outline, you can take a look in there if you want to follow along. If you are, you know, kind of like, I don't want to look down, I don't want to read stuff, I just want to look on the screen or look, whatever, great. There's however you want to follow along. We're going to be in, um, in the book of Judges, uh, chapter um, 11, primarily. And so you can take a look in there. If you want to pull out your Bible and do that or, you know, on your iPad or iPhone or whatever, follow along, great. However it helps you to follow along. While you're kind of doing that, I'm going to ask you just real quick. This is actually, this is not a rhetorical question. I'll ask you, and you think about it, and then, then I'll ask you to give me some answers. So think about this question, then I'll ask you, okay? Um, have you ever had the experience of throwing something away that you later regretted? Think about it for just a moment. That you thought, I'm going to throw that away. And then whether it's moments or years or weeks or days later, you thought, I should not have thrown that away. How many of you guys have had that experience? Okay, what are some of them you had? What are they? So we're all lying. We all had the experience. Now we're not willing to share about it. It was like that embarrassing, whatever you threw away. <laughs> what is it? A relationship. Wow, way to just jump right into like the most heavy stuff. I was thinking like my retainer when I was like in eighth grade, you know? Relationships. Okay, everybody, that's, um, let's just pray. Okay. Um, <laughs> what else besides relationships or retainers or other R words? What else? Clothing. Clothing, Christmas decorations. I don't need this Santa that looks like a dog. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have thrown that away. Okay, what else? Yeah, what else? One more time? Crafts. Is that you said crafts? Oh, (laughs) crafts. Yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I honestly thought you said grass. I was like, you know what? Unless you're in Colorado, that's, you know, probably, you know, some of you. Doesn't matter. It's cool. Sorry. Okay, uh, what else? We throw away that you thought I later regretted it. What's that? Oh, baby, baby, who's going to need this little onesie? Which, you know, guys, you don't know what a onesie is. I know. You have an engineering degree to snap that thing together. Middle of the night, kid moving around. Yeah. Okay, good. Throw stuff away you want back later. Anything else you guys got? What else? Leftovers. Leftovers. Yes. Some of us regret that. Others of us, not so much. You know, oh, I'm so... Oh, I'm so bummed I threw that away. That's too bad. I was going to eat that, but I threw it away on purpose. Uh, There's all kinds of stuff we do that with. Have you guys ever accidentally thrown away your kid's art and they witnessed you do it? Oh, my gosh. Are you throwing away that thing I just drew for you? No, no. I store all your art in here. It's actually, this is right next to the coffee grounds and the milk. And so I just, that's, you'll understand when you're old, this is how you save art. Truth be told, my, my mom, of course, had the parent guilt like we all have when our kids give us stuff that we can't, it's like virtually indistinguishable. And she, she had, you know, she had boxes of this stuff. And when I was probably about 32, 
she brought over all these boxes of my art that I demanded that she save, and she's like, I don't know what to do with it. What would you want to do with it? And now I'm really conflicted. No, I was like, uh, you know what? I actually don't need this. My second grade drawing of a pumpkin or whatever it is, just throw that away. But anyway, we, we have this experience where we throw stuff away, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. You know, like my wife one time threw away a Home Depot gift card, which I was like, she's like, I thought it was empty. No, it had $100 on it. Yeah, it's just like throwing away a relationship, isn't it? Yep, just the same thing. <laughs> but the idea is that we throw these things away and there's this moment where we go, things are not as they're supposed to be and there's no way to get it back and it's all my fault. And we have this kind of trash regret. Like, I didn't, I wanted to, I, at the time I didn't want this and now I have this feeling of, I wish I didn't get rid of that. And this is kind of in a lot of ways, to, to, this is kind of a rough way to say it, but in a lot of ways this is the, the story of God's people in the Bible. Over and over again, and it'll make sense. The analogy will make sense in a little bit, but you get this sense here. This is particularly God's sto- the, the story of God's people in the Bible through the book of Judges. And now here's basically the Judges has kind of this downward spiral. We've talked, for, um, if you were here earlier in the series, we talked about a guy named Samson also in the book of Judges. But there's this basic spiral that happens for the people in the book of Judges. And it's, it's roughly like this. There's this downward spiral where they have kind of this broken, people have a broken loyalty to God, God's people kind of decide, we're with you, but we're not with you anymore. We want to do stuff on our own. And then they, uh, they, have, they suffer some kind of oppression, usually in the form of some kind of invading army, because God says, all right, if you don't want me, you can have whatever other gods are out there. And the other gods come in, and those people come in and crush them. Then you have the people crying out to God, and then there's a rescue, usually in the form of a judge, which is more than just sort of a person who's you know, you know, administering law. This is a person who rescues his people. And so this is what you have. You have abandoning the covenant loyalty is what it's called, abandoning loyalty to God. You have an oppression by some kind of foreign army. You have the crying out and the rescue, and that's the cycle. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse throughout the book of Judges. Now, that's just, you need that background to get this picture where we are in Judges chapter. In the very end of Judges 10, it says this. Here's what it says, verse 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms, there's your first clear picture of who the enemies are. The Ammonites, these are the, these are the forces of evil. Uh, were called to arms and camped in Gilead. The Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Now, what's being said here is, we're so desperate for leadership and we don't know what to do that the only qualification for a leader is willingness. It's all it is. It's just like, hey, you know, I'm, I, I, really, I, I really think I should lead. Great, you're up. You, fight, you want to fight these guys? You're our new guy. That's all the, they're so desperate. They're looking at this army, the Ammonites, and going, we're going to lose. And nobody wants to fight them. If anybody steps up and fights these guys, they'll be our leader. That's how desperate they are for a leader. So someone steps up. Here we go. Enter the hero right here. Judges 11, verse 1 says this. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Stop right there. First of all, Jephthah is like, the, it's, somehow it is the hardest name for me to say. Maybe because it sounds like Jeff, but not exactly. It sounds like Jeff, duh. You know, like, I don't know what that is for me. But there's this guy now, Jephthah, who is a person who is identified as a mighty warrior. And whenever we imagine a mighty warrior, we go, that's probably the hero. There's, there's these great odds, and then there's this guy identified as the hero. But we keep reading in verse 1, his father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Now, first thing is Gilead. So he's from Gilead, and his dad was named Gilead. So just don't get too confused there. It's like if you were named Johnny Ladera, you know, like, and the hero is Johnny Ladera Ranch. You know, like, that's kind of what you have here. And it says, though, that his mother was a prostitute. 
mighty warrior. His father has a name that identifies him with his own people. He's got this honor. And then there's this mom, prostitute. That everything kind of that's supposed to go with the heroic person, the leader, and all that kind of stuff isn't really quite clear. I mean, in fact, if, you're, if your mother's a prostitute, you aren't someone who's welcome at anybody's table. This is a person who at the very beginning of his life is already told, we don't want you. You're unwanted. You have a story that you're not responsible for, but you're the outcome of that story. The circumstances around your life are so incredibly, um, how would you say, they're so incredibly unsavory that you have to be out away from us. We don't want you around us. You are unwanted. Here's what happens in verse 2. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So this is not, this is not Jephthah's mom. This is Gilead's wife who also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away saying, you are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So he's sent away. Basically, he's not sent away. He kind of runs away like, you guys don't want me. I'm out of here. He runs to the land, which, you know, Tob, wherever that is, which they don't really know where that is. And it says that a gang of scoundrels followed him. Again, every so often I'm looking in the Bible. Some of you guys know this for like the name of my next punk band. We already had Wicked Fist. That comes from Isaiah. And now you have gang of scoundrels. All right, there they are. They're going to be awesome. They're going to be totally offensive to everybody, gang of scoundrels. Now, the word gang of scoundrels, that phrase, it, some translations it has a group of lawless men. One translation has this way. The actual Hebrew is this. It, it actually is the word, actually words, these are empty men. Empty men. People that are unwhole. These are people who are kind of like, they got all kinds of gaps in their life. And there's this guy, the mighty warrior, who is unwanted, runs the land of Tob, gathers his empty men who follow him, and he's kind of got this life. Now, this is by inference. We don't have this from the Scripture. There's no way to really know this. So this is me speaking about just looking at the context here. If you are told all your whole life that you are unwanted, you are shoved out of your own family, and you run away to another place, and you're followed by empty men who you know, are known as a gang of scoundrels, and in this time and place, though it's not that much different than now, just to make this idea, that you are the company you keep, more so than ever in the ancient Near East, but you get that idea. It's not like this is a guy who's living out a perfect, wonderful righteousness among a gang of scoundrels. More than likely, he's living the life of a person who's been told he's unwanted with empty people around him. So what you have is there's a mighty warrior who's essentially a biker gang leader. That's what you actually have being described here. This is kind of like Al Capone and his guys are out somewhere else far away because they're unwanted. The people, however, need a rescue because these Ammonites are still right here and they're threatening to take over and so they have no other option. So here's what they do. Verse 4. Sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, they've already told them we don't want you, but now the stakes are so high that they say, we regret the decision to throw you away and we want you. We need you. We have no other options. Our own guys, we've said you can be our boss if you just step up and start fighting these guys and nobody wants it and we don't know what to do and so we're coming to you. You have to man imagine how unbelievably awkward that is for them. Um, hi, Jeff. Remember when we threw you out? Mm -hmm. Well, we 
kind of need you now. Verse 7. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Didn't you hate me? Weren't you the guys? Now, first of all, I have to tell you something, too. There's two things, two possibilities here. The town elders, these people, the elders of Gilead, this land, have come and said, you know, we need your help. And Jephthah looks at them and says, you hated me and you threw me out. You hated me. Who's you? Two possibilities. One is his brothers, his half-brothers have become the town elders. Or the whole idea of him being thrown out was mutually agreed upon by everybody in the city who said, we don't want you. We agree with your brothers and nobody wants you. Take your empty men and get out of here. And he's calling them out. I remember how much it hurt when you guys said you didn't want me. I remember how much I felt the pain of being sent out, sent out and being left out there. And now I have this moment here. There's this second guessing of your decision. There's this rejection reversal that you're now doing. Because you told me you didn't want me, but now you want me. You hated me. This is like kind of that, that bizarre, terrible, bad teen romance. I totally hate you. Unless you want to call me later and we could maybe, you know, it's like, this is what's happening. And he's going, do you, do you know what you're saying and what you're doing to me? Because it really is confusing. How awkward for them. I remember there was a time someone had given us um, a bunch of old camping stuff. This is like years ago. They'd given us all, hey, do you guys want any of this camping stuff? And we were like, I, I think at the time, we, I don't even know, I don't think we had any kids even at the time. I was like, sure, we'll take camping stuff. We have space in our garage. Now we have 15 bikes and 47 skateboards and we have no room for your stuff. But at the time, they're like, you want all this stuff? And we were like, yeah. So they gave us backpacks and, you know, like, it was kind of like old-timey, like, Boy Scout 1940s kind of backpacks. And it was, like, kind of almost, like, vintage I'm sure they'd all fall apart midway through the hike or whatever. But there's, like, canteens and tents and all kinds of stuff. And pretty soon we realized, you know, we're really not going to, I don't know when we're going to use this stuff. You know, this is before we started trying to camp, you know. I was like, oh, we're going to do so. People said, do you guys have any camping stuff? And we started giving it away to them. Now, the original person who gave us the stuff, who was like getting rid of it from their own garage, came to us and said, hey, can I have that camping stuff back? And we were like, uh, well, we, <laughs> sorry, we, we thought you didn't want it, so we just gave it to some other people. Yeah, well, I'm going to need that back. So now we have to go to all these people and say, hey, remember we gave you that stuff? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we're going to need that back. Because we, we, you know, we thought we didn't need it, but now we actually need it because someone else needs it. And we're, it, sorry, this is so awkward for us, but this is what's happening. This is the same thing that's going on here. You sure you really want me because you threw me away, and now you're saying that you really, really need me, and, and, but you hated me. You hated me, right, guys? You didn't want me at all anymore. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. The one person they don't want to lead them is the biker gang guy with the mother who's a prostitute who they've sent away. And now they have to have this awkward moment, the most awkward moment, which is we told you we hated you and now we need you. And they don't deny the hate. They just, the word is just nevertheless. Well, they don't say, we, yeah, we, we sure did or we still do. But they don't say we never hated you. Instead, it's, they just have the word. Nevertheless, as if to say, yeah, 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 we, we did hate you. We did throw you away. We did push you aside. Nevertheless, we are turning 
to you now. Yeah, we might have hated you, but we're turning to you now. The people have a change of heart. There's this, uh, there's this kind of unique thing. But by the way, I should say this. Anytime God sends a messenger, whether it's, you know, in the Bible, whether it's, you know, a prophet or it's a, a king or it's some, uh, you know, in this case it's a judge or some kind of messenger, whatever it might be, when that, when that person is on the earth walking around, it is understood that that person as a representative of God is someone who, if you, as you treat that person, so you also treat God. This is true of Jesus as well. You know, so however you treat this person is how you're treating God. Now, everybody in the original audience who would have read this story would have understood that. They would have known what's happening here. Because what's happening is these people have rejected God's messenger, even though they don't yet know who he is yet totally. They've rejected him, sent him away, and now they need him. There's a parallel here between the rejection and the needing and God and all of his people and everything else. The judge, this by way of analogy, is exactly the same as God and his people. But these people have a change of heart. They, they turn. There's a Hebrew word here, the word turn. The word is shuv, S-H-U-V. Is, I think I wrote it on your outline. But it's a, it's a word it's used a, a little over a thousand times in the Hebrew Bible. It literally just means turn. Sometimes it's like we're walking and we make a left shuv. And then we go this way and make a right shuv. Whatever it is. That kind of turn. Physical direction. But the same word is used to describe the spiritual reality which has its physical manifestations, but the idea of saying, you know, I'm going to turn, I, people would shuv or turn from God to something else, like whatever other stuff they were in, turn to the foreign gods of these people who sacrifice their children or whatever. Those are sometimes you have that. Or they would turn from those things to God. Turn. There's this person now, this outlaw, this guy, Jephthah, who's in charge. And they turn to him, the guy that they have rejected, the one that they have sent away, the one that they said, no, we do not want you. And they turn to him and they say, we want you. And not only do we want you, you get to be our leader. You and your empty men, your lawless band of bikers or whatever you've got, they get, you, you guys run the show now. Then I want just to step back for a moment. This is what we all do. Every one of us. We have this experience where we're, we move God away from us in some capacity because he's getting a little too up in our business or whatever it is he's kind of asking us to do stuff. We're like, nah, you know, I got some things going on. And whatever that is, we kind of start saying, I need you to kind of take a step away, God, if you could just kind of step over there for a moment. Because we push him to the margin and we just kind of go, we, you're kind of, kind of getting in the way. You know, you're making us frustrated. You're making a, you're kind of unwanted. You are a nuisance to the way my life goes. And I don't want you here. I know I'm not supposed to say that, God, but seriously, just give me a little bit of space. Unless we get desperate. Until things start getting desperate. Then we start going, nevertheless, I'm turning to you now. You know, while this story about Jephthah is a story we talk about, this idea of heroes and epic and everything else, this story for us as we read it today, and there's a lot more to this story than what we're going to talk about today, is really about the people who look at God, because that's our story, who say, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. You know, I was, um, I was, uh, 
I was talking to my buddy yesterday. Our, our sons are on the same soccer team. He's a pastor. And um, I had to be at his house at 6.15 this morning. We're not friends anymore, but that's a different story. Um, but I am um, talking to my, he was leaving our game early yesterday. And I said, where are you going? He goes, oh, I, I, I have to do a memorial service. I go, oh, well, really? What happened? You know, this is pretty typical for pastors. I mean, you know, what, do, what do we talk about? Well, weddings, funerals, uh, what we're teaching on the weekend. That's pretty much it. That's what we talk about. But I go, so, you know, you got a memorial. It's pretty typical for us. I'm like, well, who, what's the story? And he goes, well, you know, my son's uh, baseball coach. I go, oh, my gosh. He goes, no, no, it's different than that. I go, he goes, well, he, um, he canceled a couple practices and kind of through some other parents and people to know him, I got a phone call that said his, uh, his grandson died. How old is his grandson? Eight months old. Eight months old. He goes, so I call, you know, because I know all these parents have been in a relationship with a lot of them for a long time. I call him and I talk to him and I start, you know, like, anything I can do to help? Well, he ends up doing the memorial service. I said, yesterday after, um, I saw him after, uh, after church last night, I said, you know, so how did, it, how did it go? He goes, well, like you'd expect, Jeff. He goes, people are crying, shaking their heads. These are people with real... <laughs> honest, and in those moments of those kind of pain, those are the kind of moments that people go, I'm really ticked off at you, God. I don't know how else to say it, but the the words are pretty strong here, but it feels like I want to hate you. (laughs) But I have nowhere else to go, and I need you. How is it possible that the innocent suffer, especially people like this eight-month-old baby, and how does that happen? I can't think but to say, "I, I hate you, and yet I have nowhere else to go, and so I'm turning to you now. I think for a lot of us, as we think about our own life, think about the directions that we're headed, we're starting down a path in our own life. We've given ourselves sort of a little bit of permission. If we play out the movie of that story, of the permission that we've given ourselves to go all the way down the end of the line, where will it lead us? And we're going to get to a place at some point where we go, yeah, I didn't want you involved in my life. But I'm turning to you now. Shuv. Turn. What's even crazier is that in the moments of real desperation, it's not just that we're saying, God, would you swoop in, swoop in and just kind of deal with stuff as it is? I need, there's another thing I'm willing to give up here, which is control. Remember what these people are willing to do. Fight with us, and you'll be the head over those of us who live in Gilead. In other words, it's not just a rescue, it's a full, full kind of victory. It's a whole other kind of thing in which there's a new leader in all of things because when we try to do this on our own, we can't do it, so we need God to step in. And we say, okay, I'm crying out to you, and I put you in charge again. I know you kind of are already in charge because you're God, but I mean, you know, my orientation toward you is that I'm no longer the boss. And there's this weird thing, this idea of term, this idea of shuv. It's a weird thing in the Bible. Because how does it work? It works in this really bizarre kind of form. I want you to see this is just part of Jeremiah 31, verse 18. It says it this way. I want you to check this out. It says this. This is the prayer saying this. Restore me and I will return because you are the Lord my God. The word restore in Hebrew is the word shuv. The word return is the word shuv. In other words, turn me and I will turn to you. This is another translation of the Bible. It says this way. Turn thou me and I shall be turned. In other words, there is something that God does 
which kind of the prayer here is, God, I need you to do, so, how, I don't know how it works, but God, you do something where you kind of turn me a little bit, and then I might turn to you. I don't know how this works, you guys. Some of you are going to have all kinds of questions. I don't know how to answer. I mean, you're going to look at me at the door and go, how does that work? And I'm going to go, I don't know. In, in normal sort of parlance, the way I would say it is, God's kind of messing with some of you. He's kind of got, he's doing something in your life and you don't know how to put your hand on it. You can't quite put a finger on it, but God's messing with you in some way. It's like, you know, like there's some kind of things that are in your life that God's going, are you sure? And now all of a sudden, the way that there's a new feeling that's accompanied the way you've been living, you're going, do I still, I still want this? Because it's feeling a little different than it used to. For some of you, maybe you were brought to church. Maybe you were like not sure where you were going this morning and it was like, oh, I'll go to church and see what's happening. And you have no idea why, but God has been messing with you in some way and somehow God is restoring or turning you. But I want you to see even beyond that, just one other layer, is that restoration and turning go together. In other words, we live unrestored kinds of lives until we are turned to God. You know, from the very beginning of the Bible, there's this picture of God pursuing us and wanting us to be with him. The whole idea of God and humanity is that they're linked together in this relationship. And somehow or another, because of our own selfishness, because of our own need to say, get away from me, God, kind of run away from him. And he, the Bible, the story of the Bible is essentially God's pursuit of us. God searching for human beings, chasing them down, saying, I want you to be with me. And until we get to the place where we go, I'm turning to God, I'm turning to Jesus, we'll continue to have this unsettled feeling that things aren't right and we're unrestored. Psalm 80 says it this way, Restore us, O God, and make your face shine on, shine on us, that we may be rescued or we might be saved. Turn us, God. Please help me. To t- I, there's something going on. I, I need your help. Turn me. Turn us. I was, um, yesterday, after our second soccer game yesterday with, you know, my oldest son, he, he I'm, I'm finding these are kind of things I'm learning as a dad, too. You know, he's almost 11, and he's kind of, he's kind of inching into that sort of pre-teen hormones are just barely starting to happen, and he kind of start, he's starting to have these weird moments and all kinds of stuff, and he, and at the end of the game, he just walks off by himself, like his team is, everybody's gone, but he's kind of walked off by himself, and he's just kind of standing there, and I look at Amanda, my wife, and I go, you know, What's up? What's up with him? She goes, he's really upset at himself for how he played. And I go, really? And she goes, yeah. So I, you know, I, I walk over to him and, uh, and I go, what's up, buddy? And he goes, I just, I played so bad. And I go, okay. I, you know, I go, well, this is, now again, this is, this is, he has never done this before. So I don't know what to do with this. I've never seen this happen before. So usually it's like, oh, where are we going for, di- where are we going for lunch? That's all that matters, you know? So I'm walking over to him. I'm like, uh, what's, what's up? He goes, I just played terrible. And I go, well, did you try your best? And he goes, no. And I go, okay, well, now dads will understand this. I'm not sure every mom, some of you moms understand this. But dads, I just go, well, that's the only thing really you can be upset about is you didn't give your best effort. I mean, it doesn't, you can't make every pass perfect or do everything right or all that kind of stuff. And, and I go, you know, so I go, so next time you'll try harder. And I, and I go, um, buddy, the truth is this won't be your last bad game. You're going to have other ones. Just the reality of playing sports. And I go, the truth is, um, I go, you know, the, the, the truth is, buddy, this is, I want you to hear this. I go, whether or not you give your best effort or you have a bad game or a good game, I'm still so proud to be number nine's dad, you know, and I'm like, I love you, buddy. And he kind of gives me this kind of side hug or whatever, and I'm like, kind of nailed that. <laughs> it's kind of like, 
and roll credits at the end of the Brady Bunch episode. I mean, it was like, bam. And I'm getting that side hug. And then he looks at me, he goes, Dad. And I go, yeah, son. And, you know, again, it's, again, sunset. We're on the track, walking off the field. It is like, and we're ready to stamp this. And here's what he says. He goes, can we have this talk at home instead of in front of all my friends? So now I don't know if you heard anything, you know, that we just said. So I'm like, yeah, but I'm really sorry. I, was, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just, you know, I'm sorry you're getting older, and I wasn't thinking about that, whatever. So later on, at home, he writes this long letter to me. And long letter, I mean, it was probably four lines. It was long for him. <laughs> and in his own way, it was kind of this, he, he had a dollar, and he, he stapled a dollar to the letter. <laughs> and he's like, I want you to have this dollar because you're the best dad ever, and I want you to spend it on something. And I was like, who wants gum? You know, it was kind of one of those moments. <laughs> <laughs> but I go, well, I go, Dylan, thank you for this letter. What, you know, what was that? For? He just goes, well, I just wasn't sure if you're, you know, like your feelings would be kind of hurt after I had said this stuff to you. And I go, I go, no, buddy, you know, you were right. I, you know, you're getting older and I'm, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, buddy. And, and, um, and, you know, we had another, we had, we had a couple incidents during that day with some confrontation. And I'm realizing watching my 10-year-old son who's aware when relationships aren't the way that they're supposed to be that they need to be restored. And in his own way, he looks at me and goes, I got to turn to my dad. And I, I don't think he, I, honestly, I don't think I get why he said that. And I, was, like, I wasn't wounded at all. But he turns to me and I go, this is actually true of all of humanity. And what I mean by that is God intended for us to be together. And the whole of our lives is essentially trying to figure out how to make sense of things that aren't perfectly rightly adjusted. And God is saying, I want you to come back to me so that everything could be right, that you might turn to me as, every, as everything is supposed to be, because when we're not fully turned to God, things start to get a little bit out of sorts. Because unresolution eats at us. I don't know how many, I would say, for those of you who are not yet married, some of you who want to be married, some of you, will, you, know, you may not ever want to be married, but I'll tell you, as I, as I can think about every single fight I've ever had with my wife, as I can't think about all of them, I don't know all of them, you know, we've only had two of them. No, I'm just kidding. But as I think about all the fights, the arguments that we've had, I would say, and you know, people who have been married, I've only been married 15 years, some of you have been married longer than me, but you, you could prob- I think you could probably say that I, maybe 3%, less than 3% of those fights were actually about something of substance. I mean, I would say 97% of the things that we're fighting about are the stupidest things. Well, that's not where the remote control goes. Well, I know, but I don't know where I'm supposed to put it when there's socks here. Whatever, you know, whatever else it is that you're, all of those things where I don't even know if we've had that, but I'm sure we have, right? But the idea that there's tension and the idea of needing it to be resolved is something that eats away at us and it eats away at our soul with our relationship with God. It is what we live with and we try to figure out how to make everything sort of piece together until we turn, we don't know. And some of you are like, yeah, some of those people who don't know God should do that. <laughs> True. Every one of us has a place in our life where we go, I've pushed God out of it and I've kept it for myself and I'm refusing to turn. This is Jesus' mission in the world. To come to people who are really in trouble. If you look at the book of John, the gospel of John, the very beginning of the gospel of John, which I don't have on your outline. You have this picture of one God who sends himself into humanity and humanity says, I don't want you. And yet he still came for them. For us, people like us. Because when life gets tough, nevertheless, we turn to him. Just to fast forward the story a little bit, let me give you a sense of what happens 
with Jephthah and the Ammonites. Verse 29 in Judges 11 says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and there he advanced against the Ammonites. Skipping to 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands, and he devastated 20 towns from Erewer in the vicinity of Minith as far as Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. There's this, there's this phrase, you can miss it if you don't catch it at the very beginning, which is this. That the sh- I met Megan about 12 years ago. And I, that's not my voice. <laughs> so I'll tell you we want to cue that video, but we're ready for it. Okay. Um. <laughs> Almost. Okay. I know you're excited now to see that guy's face because you don't know who it is. Right here, I tell you. Okay. Um. But at the very beginning of this, of this sort of declaration of victory, you have that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And when he t- anytime the Spirit of the Lord is upon someone, that phrase, it's, about, it's like we're about to have some victory. That's what that means. It's essentially, it's like people who had read the original text would go, oh yeah, we're, this is where God wins. And it, it, what's, what's surprising or maybe kind of unique or maybe you've never heard this before is that in the book of 2 Corinthians, this is in the New Testament, Paul writes this letter and he says, God is Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. Meaning, all of the captivity we face, God's people are facing captivity of these these people, the Ammonites. We face captivity from the lives that we might choose in small ways or in really, really big ways. And that somehow or another, God at work through His Spirit in us enables us to turn, however that works, by our own choice and by his work, however, I don't know how that works. And we turn away from those things and we get freedom. That there would be no longer dominion over us. There would be no longer be a slave to anything else. You see, one of the things you have to remember is people who have a perception about church, I and mean, we just want to deal with this real quickly. God's victory is not for the already victorious people. It's not for the people who've got everything figured out, whose kids are perfect, whose family life is awesome, whose minivan is clean, whose all the backpacks are packed and everybody's color-coded and hair is combed. That's not who this is for. God's victory isn't for the victorious, the already victorious. God's victory is for the desperate. The people like us, the regular human beings who go, I don't have it all together. And there are some parts of my life that desperately need a turn. There are some things in my life that I don't have answers for, that I'm unclear about, that I don't want what I'm supposed to do. And there's things that I've made mistakes for, that I've kept for myself, that I've not given over to God. Those people, when we finally, that us, those people, we finally go, I don't know where else to go. I pushed you away, and I'm turning to you now. That's who God's victory is for. And there's not a single person in here who can say, I don't need that. Every one of us. Let me ask you in your own life, just as you're sitting here thinking about it and God is messing with you in some way, you don't want to admit it. You're hoping your name gets buzzed on the little pager to pick up your kids so you don't have to deal with it right now. What is it that God's saying to you about your own turning to him? Are there secret little things that you've buried in your life? Are there things that other people know about but nobody's talking about? Are there desires or longings that you're entertaining in your own heart that you go, if I really chase those things down, if I went all the way down that road, they lead me to a place where I'd have no other option, but why don't I just stop it right now and just go, choosing you, God. Not because I'm afraid of you, God, but because I have no other option. I've tried it on my own. Some of you come here 
you're considering an idea of Jesus, you're considering looking at church stuff, you're not sure about it, but your life has gotten to a place where you're like, I, I can't do this anymore. And God is messing with you. Maybe it's a day where you go for the very first time your whole life, you go, I just, I'm turning to you. I'm just, I, I'm just I don't know what else to do, but I'm, I'm turning. I want you to see a story, which you got a little preview of, the audio a second ago. I want you to see a story of a guy story of turning. Check this out. I met Megan about 12 years ago um, back at Saddleback College when we were both going there. And then eventually, you know, just, yeah, really falling in love. And, you know, the next step was we got engaged, we got married. Um, We have two daughters. We got a townhouse in Dana Point, you know, because we always wanted to live by the beach. We were really, you know, just trying to just be normal people, you know, nothing crazy. I was working in a gym, and then I got an offer to start working at a nightclub, so I decided that, okay, well, if I can work at the nightclub at night, I can spend more time with my family. When you work in a nightclub, it's just, you're sucking yourself into a different world. And I started becoming more selfish. Like, I don't want to go home. I don't want to deal with this. So I don't want to get into an argument or I don't want to have to do all this. That's when that led me to an affair and, you know, lying and, and, and cheating. And, you know, I chose to be broken. I didn't, like, you know, get broken. I chose to go get broken. And, you know, I chose that path. So we got divorced and, you know, we were separated for a few years and still saw my kids. I always be like, Daddy, do you want to go to church? You know, I finally ended up starting to go. And a lot of the times, you know, I would hear the word and it would just hit me every time. Hit me. You know, and I'm just like, okay, okay. You're trying to talk to me. I, I get it. I get it. I decided to, to get baptized because it was a way of me saying that I'm going to recommit my life you know, to, to the church, to Christ be all in and not just say I'm in just by going to church. You know, we started dating again and, and just you know, hanging out as a family more and more and we were getting closer and closer. Me and Megan were falling in love more and more and more because now it wasn't just like just falling in love, now I was falling in love, you know, with God at the center of that, which made it I mean a huge difference, you know. For her I'm sure it was a huge, huge, you know, recommitment to, you know, for both of us to say, let's get married again, you know, and you know, it was all falling back in place again. It just made me feel very, very blessed to have this opportunity. The girls wanted to be part of the, the proposal, so they drew up a little sign, and the maiden was outside, they walked out with the sign and, you know, surprised her. I'm on the other side of the hammock with the ring, and here we go. Like, on your journey again, it's happiness, pure happiness, and you get to do it again. So we got married June 10th, 2014. Once I started saying, you know, I surrender myself, you know, I give in to you, what do, what do you want me to do, how do you want me to do it? That's when things started making sense again. And, you know, we make it more complicated than what it needs to be, you know, because we want what we want. But if we just surrender, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. <sighs> be fine. 
great. You can clap. <laughs> it's a perfect picture of turning. You know, often what you have in the Bible is a picture of a marriage, that God and his people, the church is sometimes called the bride of Christ, that people are intended to be in this relationship. There's no better picture of a covenant relationship than a marriage. And there you have Zeus's story of being, choosing to be broken and choosing to return. What I want to do is this. One of the things I've, um, you know, I go to visit churches and kind of learn some stuff from different churches. And I visited this church in Texas. And um, one of the things that they did, and I, I was like, I thought this is a courageous thing to ask people to do. They, people are just like regular people like us are sitting there. And this person just says, hey, if you just want to come forward and pray, meaning there wasn't anybody else necessarily who was going to pray with them, but they were just going to come forward and kneel. They're just like, if you just want to come forward, either kneel or stand or whatever, up here in the front of the room, you go ahead and do that. And I'm like, no one's going to do that. Who's doing that? And probably I would say in the service I was in, 25 people walk forward. And I'm watching this thing happen, and my, my mother-in-law, who I'm sitting next to, just goes, she, I, I just go, wow, you know, I'm kind of amazed. And, and she goes, you know what, those, these people just, they came to church just for that reason. The only reason they came probably was that they would come forward. And as this sort of courageous act of standing up and kind of actually, in some way or another, publicly declaring, I don't have my act together. <laughs> That's all that that was. I don't have everything together. There were couples holding hands. There were couples kind of, there were people walking forward in tears. There were people just, and it, well, the truth is, it wasn't a church where that was the kind of thing you'd expect. But there were people who were like, literally standing up and saying as they walked forward, nevertheless, I'm turning to you now. So we're going to sing and we're going to respond. If you've been with us before, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll have people kind of walk over to the side and kind of put something in the prayer wall and kind of do that sort of stuff. And maybe the, our, our prayer team will pray for them. What I want to do is this. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more courageous, but you're courageous. And I believe that you are people who have nowhere else to go. So you're turning to God now. And so what I want you to do is this. If this is you, you go in a big way or in a small way. If you want to come up as a couple or by yourself, to walk forward to this area right here and to stand. And here's what will happen. Some of our prayer team will come around you and anonymously pray for you. We're not going to ask you for a whole story or anything else. But it would just be that you walk here and we're going to pray and sing together. And some of you are like, well, I, don't, I would do that, but the whole idea of walking up in the embarrassing, awkward scenario of that whole, I've got to walk by someone in front of the aisle and do I, how do I walk in front of them? And I just, I'm not doing it. Just want you to know, if that's what you're thinking in your head, then God's messing with you. And maybe you need to come forward. No one's going to ask you to proclaim anything in front of in a microphone or anything else. What you're just saying is, I'm like everybody else in this room. I don't have my act together and there's some areas in my life that I need to turn back to him. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for you. And after I'm done, you just walk forward. Okay? Father, as we think about our own lives, we think about the people in this room who are people whose lives are in need, whose hearts, like all of us, have turned away in some ways our whole life or in some other ways, maybe just a little bit of our heart. But we played the, we played the tape and we know where it's all going to go if we played all the way forward in our lives. And we want to turn to you now. Jesus, we know that there is a courageous step in standing up and coming forward that says, okay, I'm admitting my life isn't perfect. But truthfully, every one of us could walk forward, Jesus. Would you give us the courage 
Would you restore us that we might return to you? Would you turn thou me that I might turn to you? So, Father, be at work in this place in people's hearts as we sing and as we respond as, we respond, as people pray. In your name, Father. Amen.